0: This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio.
1: And online at SBNationLive.com.
0: From the O'Reilly Auto Parts Studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Oh boy, you know
2: that sound, uh, especially this week, Ronnie. Yes, sir. Sound
3: of my son in a flock of geese trying to, when he's playing his saxophone, <laughs> doing the Dreidel song.
2: <laughs> <laughs> flock of geese, better than a flock of seagulls, right? <laughs> well, no, no, it's it's the signal that Thanksgiving week is here, and you know what it is, and that can mean only two things: one, Arlo Guthrie's Alice's restaurants playing somewhere, probably on roughly a thousand FM radio stations. And two, the Hall of Fame announced its list of 2000. Well, no, 25 2019 semifinalists. And you know what? The Hall has. Hey, Gooseman, you've seen it. You may be camped out in Canton as we speak, but so is Ron. Ron's seen it, so have I. And so is most everyone interested in the class of 2019. So what do you think?
4: I like the fact the ballot is heavier on defensive players than offensive. You know, There are 13 semifinals on defense, only nine on offense. You know, there's an imbalance in the hall slanted to the offense, and that's something that needs to be addressed long term, and this is a nice start.
2: Yeah, no, I agree with you, and, and we're going to talk more about this, but uh, Goose, quickly, your biggest surprise.
4: Well, probably the fact that Tom Flores has entered the hunt for the first time as a semifinalist. He's one of the three coaches on the ballot, along with uh, Don Coriel and Jimmy Johnson. You know, coaches are always long shots, but it's good to see deserving candidates such
2: as
3: these three in the discussion. Ron, that's
2: your cue. What's <laughs> the, 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 <laughs> the surprise the for you?
3: Well, it, Mike Ken didn't make it. I can't. I guess it'd be unfair to call it a surprise, but you know, it was his last yeah, It's very disappointing. And you're really going to look me in the eye, voters, and tell me that he didn't deserve to be in that room at least one time in 25 years of being eligible? Do you ever see a yeah. guy play?
2: Yeah. So, or call well, somebody who did. Yeah, it is disappointing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and as you said, really no surprise. And it's also no surprise that we have a Thanksgiving theme show today with former Cowboy Drew Pearson. The man who caught Clint Longley's touchdown pass on Thanksgiving Day 1974. She's 44 years ago. Anyway, he's with us. So is the league's all-time leading scorer, Adam Vinatieri of the Colts, as well as Hall of Fame voter Bob Glauber of Newsday, who has a best-selling book out there on three coaches I think you've heard of. Like Bill Walsh, Bill Parcells, Joe Gibbs. Yeah, I think you've heard of them. The book's called Guts and Genius, and Ronnie, when I saw it, I thought he was writing about us.
3: Well, yeah, the gut part, right? Geniuses, not so much.
2: <laughs> yes, your gut part, right? Anyway, a lot to get to, including our Thanksgiving Day pardon, so don't go away. You're listening to the Talk Fame Network.
0: This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges.
2: Well, as we referenced earlier, the Pro Football Hall of Fame's list of semifinalists for the class of 2019 is out there, and it includes the usual suspects, um, like really all of last year's finalists, guys like Ty Law, offensive lineman Kevin McWide, Tony Baselli, Alan Fanica, Steve Hutchinson, running back Edron James, as well as safety John Lynch familiar list but it also includes first year eligibles champ bailey tony gonzalez and ed reed as well as a couple of surprises that'd be linebacker zach thomas and former raiders coach and quarterback tom flores each of whom is a semifinalist for the first time so goose let's start with the surprises what or who got your attention
4: well, for obvious reasons, Darren Woodson. This is his third trip to the to summer finals after skipping a year. He's the all-time leading tackler on the Cowboys and a key defender on a team that won three Super Bowls. This is his 10th year of eligibility, and the ticking of his clock is getting a little bit louder.
2: Yeah, yeah. Well, it's, uh, Ron, how about you? I, I, is its it... Is it... Tom Flores, Raiders. The autumn wins. The autumn (laughs) wins. You
3: know, certainly it's Tom. I mean, uh, and not because I don't believe he's deserving because, uh, quite honestly, you really can't write the history of of pro football without his name. He's the first Hispanic starting quarterback. He was the first Hispanic head coach, the first Hispanic head coach to win the Super Bowl, uh, which Tom did twice with the Raiders. He's also one of only two guys, I believe. Uh, to make the Super Bowl as a player, as an assistant coach, and as a head coach. I think Mike Ditka is the other. Uh, so I'm very happy for him, frankly. Uh, you, you know, I think he I think he deserves to be in that room, and I hope he gets in there. You know, uh, we'll decide once we're in there whether or not he's going to go forward into the hall or not, but I think he certainly earned the right to be, as a lot of these guys have, uh, to be discussed at some point in time by the committee.
2: Hey, Ron, you can't write the history of the NFL without Autumn Wind. Or Goose. That's right. (laughs) Well, hey, guys, how about Mike Ken? I know we talked about him earlier in the first segment, but how about Mike Ken not getting through in his last year of eligibility? I mean, I'm not sure I'd say that was a shocker. Um, But he'd been there before. In fact, he'd been there three of the past four years, and now he goes into the senior pile, Ron, which means, uh, I guess, uh, the great abyss that's reserved for those who've been out of the game 25 years or longer. And and let's be honest, uh, that's not good.
3: No, no, it's not, and you're right. That's what Goose and I call it all the time—the Great Abyss. It's, uh, uh, although many worthy Hall of Fame candidates uh, do fall into the Great Abyss. Oh, sure. A uh, few escape. It's like crossing the river Styx. Abandon hope, all <laughs> ye who enter here. I mean, if you get out of there, I mean, you should be lighting candles for a week. It's just—I'm uh, like, I'm sad to see him get in there without at least having a chance to have uh, the great debate that he deserves.
2: Ron, glad to know that you know that Sticks is something more than a band. Great
3: right?
5: band, by the
2: way. <laughs> yeah, yeah right. Hey, Gooseman, I know you've got to be happy. I heard you in the first segment. Uh, as you mentioned, there were more defensive players. That'd be 13 chosen as there were offensive players. There were nine offensive players. But I- I'll be honest with you. Frankly, I was disappointed to see that a couple of defensive players that we pushed last year, and that would be Bryant Young and Leslie O'Neill, both of whom I did cover, uh, they didn't make the cut. But like
4: overall, i say I was disappointed with the list. You know, I've always felt we don't cycle enough worthy candidates through the room. So let's take a roll call here. There were 25 semifinalists in the class of 2018. Five were elected. That brings us down to 20. Two saw their modern-day eligibility expire, Jacoby and Everson Walls. brings us to 18. 17 of the 18 eligible semifinalists in 2017 have returned to the list in 2018. The only one passed over in 2018 was Simeon Rice. So who got the new spots? Three first-time guys, Bailey Gonzalez-Reed. That puts us back at 20. He ran off the field with Clay Matthews and Darren Woodson. Back with the third-time feast, Sam Mills, second-timer, and two first-timers, Flores and Zach Thomas. By and large, we get into a rut where we just keep recycling the same names in, the, in these votes. And yeah. we need to get new names, new candidates in that room.
2: Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. Um I want to ask you one thing though. That, that, that I mentioned, Leslie O'Neill. What's the problem with him, Goose? I mean, he has as many sacks as LT. I think it's 132 and a half. He has many as many sacks as LT, and he's tied for 13th on the all-time sacks list. So why isn't there more love for Leslie O'Neill?
4: Let me ask you this: What's wrong with Ben Coates? What's wrong with Richmond Webb, Neil Smith, Leroy Glover, Carl Banks, Joey Bronner, Darren, Sher- Darren Sherry? They were all all-decade players who can't get a sniff. From this committee, you know, when we cut down to 25, there are a lot of what's wrong with questions mm-hmm. floating
2: out there, yeah, right. Well, a couple others I want to address, and that's safety's LaRoy Butler and Steve Atwater. Um, they're both on this list, and Butler was a semifinalist for the first time this year, he's now a second, a semifinalist for the second time. And Atwater's been a finalist once before, I mean, finalist, not semifinalist, he's been a finalist once before, and that was 2016. Both are first-team all-decade choices, yet neither seems to have much traction. sort of follows on what Goose was saying earlier. And, Goose, I'll start with you. Um, Can you see one of them, maybe Butler, getting through to the finals this time? Well,
4: don't call it out Lynch and Woodson. We've got five safeties on this ballot, and I'd be surprised if more than two of them get to the finals. Ed Reed is going to be one. Then it's going to be a coin toss, and I think the other four are going to split the vote and possibly knock each other out. Hmm. Hmm.
5: How
2: about you, Ron?
3: Well, you know, I gotta say, uh, and Gooseman raises a good point, and I know, you know, I'm going to be blasphemed from, from, uh, uh, you know, from. from You're going to be what? Yeah, you know, yelled at. Uh, you know, from, from oh, like, okay. You know, situate to Seattle for saying this, but um, why can't? And look, I think the guy's a great, 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 great player, one of the great players, Ed Reed, but. You can't wait a year or two to get some of these other guys forward whose names have been at the Atwaters of the world and the Butlers? Really? I mean, it would be that uh, grave an injustice uh, if he had to wait? I don't think so. I really don't because, you know, you guys have heard me say it a thousand times and you're tired of hearing it, but I'm going to say it again. You know, What do they call the, la- the guy who finishes last in medical school? A doctor. You know, I, I've asked the Hall of Famers, a bunch of them, if they've ever once been asked what ballot did they get in on. And I haven't found one guy who told me that he was ever asked. Yeah. You're in, you're in. Now, they may be within the the group a pecking order, you know, uh, but it's, 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 you know, I think our fixation on that is what knocks out, as Goose says, uh, you know, people fill out the ballot and they start with Ed Reed.
2: Yeah, who's well, got 24
3: yeah, that, years to go, and then they go from there. You know, it's just,
2: yeah, I, I I don't disagree with you. all that's well and good, but let's face it, he's going to be a finalist, and he's probably going to be <laughs> a first ballot choice.
3: Probably is, probably is. Yeah. And I'm not saying that he's not a great player, and certainly you can make a case uh, uh, for him as a first ballot player. But mm-hmm. if you said to me, if I was Ed Reed, they said to me, you "No, know, Ed, you got to sit there for two years so that Steve Atwater and Leroy Butler can get their shots." I would not have a terrible problem with that, and I bet Ed Reed wouldn't
2: either. Yeah, yeah. Uh, And and I I want to stop here just to explain something for our listeners. Uh, uh, Now that we have 25 semifinalists, there's another cut, and we'll be making it between now and mid-December with the 15 modern-year finalists announced in early January, and the vote on the five inductees is, of course, the day before the Super Bowl.
4: Now, Clark, I think the only three you can pencil in every step of the way from here on out are the first-time eligibles, Bailey, Gonzalez, and Reed. Like I said, we have 17 candidates who were passed over a year ago. Mm-hmm. I don't see any other slam dunks. If you've been passed over once, you can get passed over again.
2: Yeah, and okay. then you get passed no. over
3: 25 times, and you get passed, and then you pass the River sticks, And 10 <laughs> years later, people say, geez, well, how come that guy didn't get in the Hall of Fame?
2: Yeah, you're right. <laughs> you know, um,
3: well, look, look, just... look how we handled Walls and uh, Jacoby
2: last year. Right.
3: Oh, and yeah, both guys right. are Hall of
4: Fame worthy, and they just got knocked out. So I, I wasn't surprised after what happened to Jacoby last year that this group didn't uh, vote Ken to the semifinals. It's disappointing. But after Jacoby last year, I, I don't think this committee is going to give much thought to guys in their last year of eligibility.
2: Hey, Ron, how about the coaches? And, and that's the last group I want to deal with here. There are three here, Don Coriel, Jimmy Johnson, Flores. Coriel, and Johnson already been finalists, but not Tom Flores. He's not even been a semifinalist. So what do you think oh, his geez. chances are moving forward?
3: You know, probably not great. I hate to say it, but no knock on Don Coyle, but he's not going to get in. You know, at least yeah. at least not yeah. in the present format, you know. Coach has got to win. You know, uh, he's got to win something, you know, and he has. And you got these other two guys that have won uh, uh, two Super Bowls each. Uh, you know, if, if those guys get passed over for a guy who didn't win anything, I, I think that's pretty tough. But I think that in the long run, uh, Flores has been around a long time. Uh, And this is the first time he's gotten this far. So does he make the jump? Maybe. I'd like to see it because as Goose said, and Goose is 100% right, You know, get some new blood, get some new people in that room, and he would be one of them.
2: Yeah, well, it's good to see at least some new names here, and here's hoping we can get at least a couple of them through his finalists. And you know what, guys? Here's to another break, too,
0: because we're going to take one right now. This is the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio from the O'Reilly Auto Parts Studios. Here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges.
2: Well, I see that we finally have winners in the midterm elections in Florida, and hallelujah. Um, Goose, can you imagine what would happen if there were, that were the case and say, wait, but the Hall of Fame elections? Um, were someone who finished, let's say, maybe in the top ten or someone who presented a top ten finisher? ron for instance um demanded a recount of votes (laughs) what would happen then
4: well, that was T.O.'s TR, next ploy. He had been passed over in the class of
3: 2018.
2: <laughs> hey, by the way, Ryan, I want to get something clear. I'm not trying to give you any ideas here, all right, for Title off.
3: Let me tell you, don't think it hasn't crossed my mind. As a matter of fact, I've <laughs> already decided that my final act, the last year I'm in it, will be to wrestle
2: <laughs> those ballots from the cold, clammy
3: hands of those guys in the gray final saloons from Deloitte and Touche. And I'm going to stand up and say, Touche, Touche, <laughs> <"Douche>, I'm <laughs> counting <laughs> these things for free. And, Goose Man, you're the man with all the answers on the numbers. We have 48 ballots. Why do they need 24 accountants to
2: count them? (laughs) Good question. Send them to Florida. A room full of accountants. (laughs) Yeah. Well, we're not recounting votes here, but we are offering our annual Thanksgiving pardons to all those NFL turkeys that deserve them. And we do it every year. And every year, the pardoned, yeah, they're grateful. Forever grateful. In fact, Goose, I think the Cleveland Browns, tell me if I'm wrong about this, but I think the Cleveland Browns once considered you Yes, you, for a head coaching job before they moved on to Condoleezza Rice. Is that true?
4: I passed on the opportunity.
2: <laughs> well, it's a passing league. Smart I, get,
4: I get a better gig with you guys. <laughs>
2: yes, you do. Yes, you yes, do. You. <laughs> More longevity, too, and security. Anyway, we have our pardons, and the Grateful are lined up and waiting to be called. <laughs> so, Goose, you're first. Who do you have?
4: My first pardon goes to Mexico City, which was stripped of the NFL's <laughs> biggest game of the year, maybe several years, because of poor field conditions. Hey, who knew a rock concert and a little rain <laughs> and three weeks before an NFL game caused so much damage to that Estadio Azteca field? All Always forgiven, Mexico City. Just don't screw it up again in 2019.
2: <laughs> Ole! Try to top that, Ron. Really? Uh, well, uh, I want
3: to pardon the Las Vegas construction industry, but needing two years to build a stadium in the desert where they can work 365 days a year. What happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. I get it. But what doesn't happen in Vegas has to stay there, too. So they are pardoned. Two years to build
2: a football Well, I'd like to pardon all those calling for Colin Kaepernick's return to the NFL, as they so dutifully did when Alex Smith broke his leg last weekend. And the reason is simple. It's not only not going to happen, people, it's never going to happen. Look, the guy's been out of football two years. He's made a name for himself as a political activist, a Nike salesman, and and he was what? Something like 2-16 his last regular season starts? Is he better than, say, Mark Sanchez or whoever backs up Canton Newton? Uh, he absolutely is. But remember what Tony Dungy said. If you sign him, it should be only as a backup. And who's going to sign a backup who brings the circus to town? Answer? Nobody. So move the crusade to another topic, another town. Maybe like, maybe like the return of the Stanley Cup to Montreal. Yeah, yeah. Go Habs, go. Anyway, Colin Kaepernick, the NFL. It ain't gonna happen. So save your breath and your word counts. You all are forgiven. Ain't Thanksgiving, great goose. <laughs>
4: My next pardon goes out to Giants rookie running back Saquon Barkley, who got his hands on but couldn't catch an Eli Manning pass on a second-quarter wheel route against the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. It was the only incomplete pass thrown by Manning all day, and it cost him a rare, perfect passer efficiency reading. But since Barkley rushed for 142 yards and two touchdowns and scored a third touchdown on a pass reception in a New York victory, all is
3: forgiven, Saquon, your pardon. Uh, My second pardon is to my boyhood Patriots. My son just turned 12 years old. He thinks they win the Super Bowl every other year and go to the conference championship every year. They do. He has Tom Brady. I had Butch Songen. He has James (laughs) White. I had Gerhard Schwedys. Try that one out for size. (laughs) So I am pardoning Gerhard Schwedys, a failed number one pick. I am pardoning the great Butch Songen. Even the sweet Kentucky Bay, Bay Perilli, I will pardon him as well for <laughs> the terrible, terrible teams I had to watch here in the early days of the Patriots.
2: Gerhard Schwedis, did he play at Syracuse? was he at Syracuse? He did play at Syracuse. He was a number yeah, one pick. So. I remember him. I do. Gerhard yeah.
3: Schwedis, he came right over from Germany after the war, I think.
2: Okay, well, lastly, I don't want to get too far from the day where we give thanks because we're always grateful on Thanksgiving for Turducken, Clint Longley, Randy Moss, and the over when the Rams and Chiefs are playing. So, given that, and given that we have Drew Pearson in the house, the guy who caught that memorable pass from Clint Longley, I'm going to ask you guys, and start with you, Goose, what are your most memorable Thanksgiving Day games? How about it, Goose? Easy.
4: 1962 Packers-Lions, Vince Lombardi's best team, 11 Hall of Famers. The Detroit defense manhandled Green Bay, gave him its only defeat of the season, shredded the Packers, 11 sacks, defensive touchdown, a safety, and a 26-14 victory. Defensive coordinator who drew up that Detroit defensive game plan, Don Shula.
3: Ooh, Ronnie. Ooh, pretty good. For me, the most memorable Thanksgiving moment I had, November 22nd, 2012. The butt fumble. That's the play that effectively ended Mark Sanchez's days as a legitimate NFL quarterback. Remember the play? I he's do. Forked the nose tackle, jacks up the Jets guard Brandon Moore as Sanchez turns in the wrong direction and has nobody to hand the ball to. So he's staggering around. He tries to run forward, and he gets flattened by Brandon Moore's buttocks, fumbles the ball, <laughs> and a guy named Steve Gregory from the Badgers picks it up and runs it in for a touchdown. I thought on Thanksgiving you were looking for turkey, not rump roast.
2: <laughs> Could only happen to the Jets. Could only it happen to the Jets. Unbelievable. Yeah. Well, I'm going with a 1993 Dallas Miami game known affectionately as. The Leon Let game. Yeah. And anyone who watched it will never forget it, including Leon himself, who called it one of the worst days of my NFL career. Uh, to make a long story short, uh, there were 15 seconds left on a bitterly cold day. Goose, you were probably there. Um, sure. When the Dolphins lined up for a 41 yard field goal with Miami down by one, kick was blocked. Cowboys survived, except, well, <laughs> except that Leon chased the bouncing ball down the field and thinking that the play was still alive, he fell on it, or at least. Tried to fall on it. Uh, ball got away. Dolphins recovered, and then they kicked the game-winning field goal. Just a guess, Gooseman, but uh, Leon didn't get the drumstick that evening. He probably got the rump roast.
4: <laughs> yeah. Well, let me dig back into my Detroit roots, roots once again. When the AFL merged the NFL, the league sent three of the AFL's marquee franchise into Detroit's Thanksgiving Snake Pit to play the Lions. Ron's Raiders in '70. Chiefs 71,
3: Jets 72. The Lions thumped all three of them. Ooh, ooh, good one. Uh, my other memory is November 27th, 1980 game, when the Bears came back from being down 17-3 to in the fourth quarter to for- force the first Thanksgiving overtime in Turkey Day history. Everyone wanted, apparently, to get home really quickly. This also became the shortest overtime period in history. When Bears' Dave Williams returned a kickoff in 13 seconds for a 97-yard touchdown. Game's over. Let's eat. I remember that.
2: Well, speaking of overtimes, I'm going with an overtime game. Remember that Jerome Bettis overtime coin toss call? That was Thanksgiving Day 1998, game between Pittsburgh and Detroit. Betta said he called tails during the coin flip. Referee Phil Luckett said he called heads. Guess who won? Anyway, it was tails. Lions got the ball, and not long after, they got the game. Afterward, Jerome says, uh, I am incensed. I can't believe it. Three plays in audio, however, seem to suggest. Yeah, he first said heads. The upshot of this? Huh. Change the rule. Afterwards, Chief Commissioner Paul Tagaboo said the captains must make the call prior, yes, prior to the flip. Not during it.
4: All rise.
1: Here comes the judge.
2: Whoa. There's a call for someone unforgettable. Unfortunately, it's Aaron, not Clark Judge. Anyway, you're going to have to live with me for the moment because I want to make a Hall of Fame case for someone the Washington Redskins were grateful to have. And someone I wrote about on our website. That would be talkoffamenetwork.com this week. And that's defensive end Gene Brito. Uh, I wrote about him because I had his trading card when I was a kid. Ron, you told me you had his trading card, right? You had about 200
3: 257
2: of them was unbelievable. He was in every pack. (laughs) He was in every pack. But what I remember about him was that he and really that car, they were a lot better than the Washington Redskins. In fact, Gene was a five-time pro bowler, including four straight years when the team had one winning season, and he was voted the league's most valuable player in 1955. Now, Gene began his career as a wide receiver, and then he shifted to defense in his third season with Washington. And then he left. Left the NFL. He left for the CFL after a contract dispute, only to return a year later and make so much of an impact that he was a five-time All-Pro with four first-team selections. Now, legend has it that one afternoon when Washington was playing the Steelers, the Pittsburgh quarterback got so angry that his certain offensive tackle was getting beaten again and again. And he was getting beaten by Gene Brito, the quarterback next to get beaten. Anyway, this quarterback told that offensive lineman to do whatever he had to, including holding, to stop Gene Brito from crashing the pocket. And he said, I don't care if an official is watching, just hold him. The offensive lineman reportedly threw up his hands in despair and said... But I am holding him. <laughs> That's how good Gene Brito was. And he was popular with Redskins fans. In fact, he was John Kennedy's favorite player, mostly because he was one of Washington's few good players. Someone teams frequently double team, which uh, was honestly rare in those days, and someone who knew how to get to the quarterback. Now, Gene died in 1965 from ALS, and he's all but forgotten by everyone outside the Capitol Beltway. hasn't been a Hall of Fame finalist, and he's never been on anyone's short list. And you know what guys? That's a shame, because Gene Brito deserves better.
4: He started on offense, moved to defense. Was that his choice or was he asked to switch?
2: Goose, I can't be certain about that, but from what I gather from reading, I think it was um, a decision made by coaches. He caught 45 passes in his first two years, then moved to the other side, and he made an impact there, and they sort of kept him there. But I think that was their choice, and he didn't object, and and then he he grew into the position and and stayed there. What took him so long? (laughs) Damn good question. I don't know. I wasn't alive in 1953. (laughs) No, I was, but I'm not admitting to it.
3: I would have a question, but I think we're running out of time. So we're going to just sprint forward. <laughs> okay. When we come back, oh. we're going to talk two-minute drill. No more Gene Brittle, but I, I am going to you send you one of his 812 cards, which I have here in the whole box. <laughs>
0: This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Well, our first
2: guest knows a lot about the NFL's Thanksgiving tradition. That's because Drew Pearson played in eight Eight turkey day games with the Dallas Cowboys in the 1970s and 1980s, including the memorable 1974 come-from-behind defeat of heavily favored Washington. That's sometimes called the Clint Longley game. Maybe it should be more appropriately called the Drew Pearson game. Anyway, he was an NFL all-decade wide receiver for the 1970s, and he caught 30 passes on Thanksgiving and turned in three 100-yard games to help the Cowboys win six of those eight games with two of them, or two of the three 100-yarders versus arch-rival Washington. It just so happens that Dallas is playing Washington this Thanksgiving. Drew, welcome back. Always good to hear from you, especially, especially this week.
5: (laughs) Yeah, thanks. Thanks, guys. Thanks for having me. And, yeah, it's an exciting time for me. I still get up. Because it's a Thanksgiving day, day game, just like I did back in the day. I started playing on Thanksgiving Day back in high school. Uh, that was our tradition back in high school in South River, New Jersey. We played our Thanksgiving Day game on Thanksgiving morning at Rutgers University. And uh, that was always a big deal. So uh, I was used to playing on Thanksgiving, but not like I did when I, uh, when I did put, uh, play for the Cowboys. That's for sure. Big stuff.
4: Drew, the Cowboys and Lions are the annual Thanksgiving game hosts, but that wasn't always the case, not for the Cowboys anyway. The Cowboys hosted their first Thanksgiving game in 1966 and played every year since then except for two, 1975 and 1977, and you were on those teams. So what was going on those two seasons, and how unusual was it not to be playing Thanksgiving Day those game seasons?
5: Well, Rick, I don't, I don't actually know what was going on in those seasons. Uh, uh, it was unusual for us not to play. So for us not to play, um, you know, something that we missed. But I do know in 75, we end up in the Super Bowl, losing to the Pittsburgh Steelers in 77. We ended up in the Super Bowl that year winning against the Denver Broncos in Super Bowl 12. so uh, not playing on Thanksgiving might have been the way we should have been going to, to help us win some, uh, get to some Super Bowls. But uh, it was unusual not to play, but to tell you the truth, Rick, I can't, under- I can't remember the circumstances uh, that led to that.
3: Yeah, sure. Drew, the, the Cowboys lost uh, to the eventual Super Bowl champion Dolphins in your first Thanksgiving in 1973, that first Thanksgiving Day game for you. Uh, we want you to recall, if you could, the second Thanksgiving Day game in 1974. That's a 24-23 win over the Redskins. You were down 16-3 in the third quarter, and you looked like you were cooked. Uh the Redskins knocked Roger Staubach out of the game, and all of a sudden in comes this guy, Clint Longley. I remember I'm eating turkey legs at the time, saying, who the hell is he this
5: yeah, right. He's
3: leading this comeback. Hey, that's middle. what we said, too.
5: Who the hell is this guy?
3: <laughs> well, yeah, what was the mood in the huddle when he stuck his head in there?
5: <laughs> well, you know, uh, there was still a mood uh, of confidence there because we are a very veteran team then, and uh, all Clinton had to do was uh, uh, not mess up. All he had to do was fit in and run the game plan that we had. And even though we were losing at that time, it was a desperate situation. Uh, but uh, we didn't do anything differently. He came in, he was very cool, very collected. Uh, Clinton, as as uh, eccentric and different as he was, he was really, really smart and knew football inside and out. He always tried to be or act like that guy in the in the meeting that wasn't paying attention. But every time you asked him a question or go to the board, he knew exactly what to do and the answers to everything. So he was well. Uh, 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 He had a a great understanding of the game plan. It was just a matter of him fitting in on that last play, the 50-yard touchdown that I caught. uh, The first touchdown, he hit Billy Joe Dupree over the middle. That got a little closer. On the last play uh, on that touchdown, I called the play. I told Clint I was going to run a turn-in takeoff on, on, uh, and to line me up on the left side, and we are hoping we'd get the right defense, and we did. And he said, after I told him I was going to run a turn-in takeoff, he, told, he said, fine, run it. And then he told Billy Joe just to run a crossing route to hold some linebacker short or underneath. Uh, he was uh, uh, very cool, very collective. We had confidence in him, for sure.
2: Well, well Drew, I'll, I'll be honest with you. Uh, I think every year at this time, I watch that touchdown about five or six times. I play it back again and again, and I remember where I was when I saw it, because I felt like Ron was. So like, who is this Clint Longley guy? And what, how are they right. beating the Redskins? But anyway, um, if you could, can you tell us what your thoughts were as you were lining up for that play? You've already told us you really you called for it in the huddle, but as you're lining up, and at what point during that route did you realize that you had him because it looks like the cornerback the mm. or defensive back quits on the play at one point and then you just extend you you, you open separation you are about five yards beyond him and you catch the ball and and uh, it was an electrifying game-winning touchdown and um just sort of wondering what you when you realized you had him and um and you realized that you were just about to score the game-winning touchdown
5: Really. Uh, On that situation, uh, I told Clint I was going to run that turn-in takeoff and to line me up on the left side. And the reason that was just the wide side of the field, I needed more room to run the route. In doing that, I I was hoping I would get a particular coverage where the defensive back plays you uh, off the line of scrimmage, he bumps you, and then releases you up on the safety, and now you're man-to-man pretty much on the safety. Uh, well, the Redskins play the coverage, what we call the banjo coverage, where Mike Bass, the cornerback, uh, he played off and then uh, filtered to the outside. And then Kenny Stone, to safety, he had the post or inside responsibility. And once I saw this on the lineup, I recognized the coverage, and I came off the line of scrimmage. I widened my path out and then weaved it in. And now I'm man-to-man on Kenny Stone. And even then, this was only my, what, uh, second year in the league, my 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 favorite route and the route I'm getting known for was the in route. And the Redskins knew this. And when I took that jab, step into. to uh, – sell the in route, I felt Kenny Stone bite on that. And when he did, I knew I'm going to get behind him. And I knew if the ball was coming, if Clint had the protection to throw the football and was able to get it out there, I was going to be able to to make the play, and Clint threw a pretty ball. I played with Staubach, Danny White, Glenn Carano, Jack Cancanon even, from back in the day, and uh, did some uh, 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 Pro Bowls with Kenny Stabler and Shaq Harris and all those guys, and no one, none of those guys threw a better deep pass than Clint Longley, and I was able to make the play, and take it in, and beat those guys pretty handedly. Later, George Allen said that one of the biggest mistakes of his career, he's the coach of the Redskins at that time, was he did not play the dog coverage where he bumped me at the line of scrimmage and tried to get physical with me there to try to disrupt me a little bit and get up but then get up on the safety, which they might have gotten the pass rush that they needed to uh, uh, stop the play. So we got the right coverage. We were able to uh, hit it, and Clinton Longley, that was the uh, one play that made his career, and... If you guys see him, let him know. I said hi, okay, (laughs) because I haven't seen him (laughs) since then, (laughs) pretty much since then.
4: (laughs) Drew, how heated was the Cowboys Redskins rivalry back then, and how gratifying was it to beat them like that?
5: Oh yeah, that was really gratifying, and the rivalry was very, uh, very heated at that time. Uh, It wasn't always that way, uh, but it became heated as soon as George Allen became coach of the Redskins, and he turned pretty much the same guys from the previous coach uh, and turned those guys into winners. And now they're competing for the NFL Uh, NFC East title every year with the Dallas Cowboys and so that created the rivalry rivalry added heat to the rivalry and of course uh, uh, George Allen and Tom Landry were different kind of guys and they kind of uh, uh, kind of went after each other and took it really personal so it was a heated rivalry they talked noise we talked noise Uh, before the Thanksgiving Day game they said they're going to knock Roger Staubach out of the game. If they do, the Cow- they're going to win, beat the Cowboys. That was Darren Calvin. Before the game, they sent Harvey Martin a funeral wreath to the practice field. Harvey carried that funeral wreath. I-, I swear, guys, he carried that funeral. They sent it on a Tuesday. He carried it all for the next couple days. I was his roommate. We're sleeping in the room the night before the game with a funeral wreath in our room. And he had it in the locker. And when the game was over and we beat him, he went over to the Redskins' locker room, took that funeral wreath and threw it in their locker room and uh, kind of uh, left after that. So it was a pretty much a heated rivalry and they didn't like us, we didn't like them and I never thought I'd ever be a Washington Redskins and none of those Redskins ever thought they'd be Dallas Cowboys so a lot of talking was going on back then for sure, for sure.
3: Uh, those were the days, funeral wreaths. I like
5: it. Yeah. <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, yes. Try to get that through
3: now.
2: Yeah, yeah. Never <laughs> yeah, <had> right. right. <laughs>
3: uh, NFL films picked the 75 greatest catches in history uh, during the 7th anniversary year, and you had three of them. There was the catch against the Redskins, and the Hail Mary against the Vikings that everybody remembers, and a and late 83 yard bomb that broke open a 1973 playoff game against the Rams. How would you rank those three catches?
5: Yeah, uh, I've been blessed. And uh, the thing is, the team and the coaches, Roger, they had confidence in me. Uh, Of course, Clinton Longley threw the Thanksgiving Day touchdown pass, but the team had confidence in me that I'd come through in those situations. And if you get the opportunity, you certainly want to make something of it. If I had to rank those three, uh, I would put the Rams catch uh, the 83 yard bomb that broke open that playoff game my rookie year in Texas Stadium on national TV my first playoff game and I had caught a touchdown earlier in the game a little quick out route on uh, Charlie Smith cornerback and uh, came back we needed this we had like a third and what 10 12. Uh, double digits, I know. And Roger told me to run a post pattern. The last thing he said, he was going to me all the way. And uh, I'm an undrafted free agent from uh, Tulsa University making fourteen five. And I spent my $150 signing bonus. And <laughs> Roger says he's going to me all the way in this big playoff game. But he ended up hitting me. And the reason that's number one is because if I don't make that play, maybe the others don't happen. And that play gave the uh, the team confidence in me so that, you know, give me opportunities in the other two. Uh, And for number two, I have to rank the Hail Mary, of course, and number three, the catch against the Redskins on Thanksgiving Day.
2: Wow. You surprised me. I thought you'd have the Hail Mary as numero uno. Yeah, that's what a lot of people
5: say, and, of course, that's the most talked about. But, again, if I don't make that play against the Rams, and I told my brother, my late brother on the way home, on a drive home after that game, I said, Moose, if I stay healthy, I think I could make a career in the National Football League because catching those two touchdowns in that playoff game, especially the 83-yarder, gave me a lot of confidence that uh, uh, now I could play in the National Football League. Hey.
4: So, Drew, when you played, how and when did you celebrate Thanksgiving? That night, the day before, the day after, when? Uh,
5: We celebrated uh, after the game. It was a very tight lift before the game. All the preparation was done. You could smell the turkey and everything, but... You know, I was a pretty evil guy on game day, and I didn't really like to be around family and stuff like that. Uh, so, uh, we just kind of waited till after the game, and I guarantee you, we made up for it, you know, and, uh, <laughs> uh, uh as a, as, because we had to wait. So when we came time to sit down and feast, we certainly did. And for the most part, you know, we're celebrating the Cowboy victory, you know, at, at the same time. A couple of times we lost on Thanksgiving, but. Most of the time, we came out victorious.
2: Hey, Drew, thanks again so much for joining us, and happiest of Thanksgivings.
5: Okay, thanks, guys. Thanks for having me, and h- uh, happy Thanksgiving to you all as
2: well. Be safe,
5: and hoot uh, hood. <laughs> hey, thank Drew, now do you. what you
2: always do. Go out and beat the Redskins. There <laughs> we go. Go Cowboys.
5: <laughs>
2: <laughs> Thanks, Drew. That was former Dallas great Drew Pearson. Up next, it's
0: 2-Minute Drew. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges.
2: Well, we're nearly through with the first hour, so... That's the two the that means we're under the two-minute drill. Ronnie, let's get started. What did Monday's 54-51
3: game between the Chiefs and Rams prove? That NFL quarterbacks don't need that thin air of Mexico City to fill the sky with football.
2: <laughs> that the NFL is not the NFL. It's the Big Twelve.
3: Can defense win a game in which it allows 50 points? Basketball or football? <laughs>
2: Looking over my shoulder, I said, yeah, especially if you're the Golden State Warriors.
3: <laughs> Things being the way they are these days, are Jared Goff and Patrick Mahomes destined to become the new Marino-Elway rivalry? Not in different conferences there.
2: Yeah, not unless the NFL makes them play with the defensive rules that Dan Marino and John Elway had to.
3: One of the stars of the game was Iran's linebacker. How many Philistines would Samson Bootcamp kill with a jawbone? <laughs>
4: Not sure, but he killed 53 Chiefs Monday night.
2: (laughs) Depends, Ron. Are we talking Jay Leno's jawbone? Then it would be the entire Chiefs roster plus Andy (laughs) Reid.
3: One last question about that game. Rams pass rusher Dante Fowler said he felt Mahomes was rattled by L.A.'s pass rush. The guy threw for 470 yards and six touchdowns. What's his definition of rattled? Two fumbles and three interceptions.
2: Making that statement.
3: (laughs) Eli Manning, the Giants quarterback, went 17 for 18 last Sunday. Did he get new GPS, new contacts, or new lease on life? Something even better. He got a good long look at that atrocious Tampa Bay defense.
2: (laughs) (laughs) You're looking over my shoulder, Geku. Stop it. (laughs) None of the above. He got Tampa Bay. Let's move on.
3: My my pal Leonard Fournette had 22 fantasy (laughs) points last Sunday. Did you guys have him active like I told you?
4: If I had a fantasy team, I'd have played Saquon Barkley last weekend
3: and been ecstatic about it.
2: No, I didn't. Last time I listened to you, Ron, I bet the house on Hillary Clinton.
3: <laughs> Is Andrew Luck the best quarterback in the NFL?
4: I'll take the guy with the most yards, most touchdowns, the guy on the pace, throw 54 touchdowns this
3: season, Patrick Mahomes.
2: I'll take the Lord of the Rings, Tom Brady. <laughs> oh, Jesus.
3: Is Rob Gronkowski a spent shell? You can't make the club in the tub, nor can you make the Pro Bowl.
2: No, he's just taking a little R&R before the playoffs. That's the end of the next. Hey, that's the end of our first hour, but stay where you are. We have Adam Venateri, Bob Glauber, and Black Friday
0: deals coming up in the next 60 minutes. So don't go away. This is the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame network on SB Nation Radio
1: and online at SBNationLive.com
0: from the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios. Here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges.
2: Welcome back to hour number two of the Talk of Fame Network. We're going to be hearing from Hall of Fame voter and author Bob Glauber in this hour. He has a book on Bill Walsh, Bill Parcells, and Joe Gibbs that hit your bookstores this week just in time for Christmas. And we have the NFL's all-time leading scorer. That would be the Colts' Adam Vinatieri, who will someday, who, sorry about that, someday wind up in Canton. First Ballot Hall of Famer, Goose. First Ballot Hall of Famer. Um, But before we do, I want to touch on something that Ryan addressed in his two-minute drill in the first hour. And that's the Rams-Chiefs game on Monday. Now, everyone knows about it, especially fantasy football players. And some are calling it, as I read somewhere, an instant classic. But, Goose, man, how do you have a classic when there's no defense?
4: Well, if you like offense, it was an instant classic. If you like defense, it was anything but... And I like defense. I also like a fair fight. And the rules no longer make NFL games a fair fight. It was entertaining. I'll give you that. But hardly would I be able to classic quote-unquote football
2: game. Yeah, no, I agree with that. And look, what Jared Goff and Patrick Mahomes did, it was entertaining, it was outrageous, and it was spectacular. But And and maybe, Ron, we should change the name of the segment to Get Off My Lawn, (laughs) because to me it it was less a classic and more really like an NBA All-Star game when everybody's doing it. Completed passes, yards, touchdowns, everyone's in the act. I mean, there was about as much defense there as there is I don't know, NFL football in San Diego.
3: No, you're right. exactly right. Uh, NFL class. That was an NBA class. He shoots, he scores! No, he shoots, he scores! No, he shoots, he scores! No, he shoots, he scores! <laughs> Finally, right. mercifully, buzzer ends it. When at last someone doesn't get to shoot and score! You know, yeah. I thought it was pretty exciting for the first quarter and pretty boring after that. Uh, yep. To me, it was like... T-ball for big leaguers. <laughs> That's
2: right. That's right. Well, it, it, it goose to me that the Bears Vikings game last Sunday. I thought that was more a classic than this one, and the reason is simple: defense. I mean, it was a football game, not a seven-on-seven drill.
4: Yeah, but this is what television wants, and this was because of that. Is what the NFL wants: yards, points, scoring, and offense. The network executives are paying billions to broadcast the games. They don't care about a fair fight. They want Star
3: Wars football. Yeah. Well, but, you know the, yeah, I agree the with game. You. They had offense. They also had defense. It wasn't like it was six to three slugfest. You know, I mean that was a great game. I think. But,
2: yeah, so, so do I. Anyway, we got to run. Um, up next, we're going to hear more about the Hall of Fame Sunday finalists, as well as solicited ideas for your Black Friday shopping. This is the Talk of Fame Network.
0: This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Before
2: we get to our Black Friday deals, guys, I I don't know if you saw that 60 Minutes interview last Sunday with former linebacker Tim Green, um, who's also, by the way, a a lawyer and best-selling author, Um, but I did, and, and it was not only gut-wrenching, uh, it was really heartbreaking. Um, Tim is someone all of us have covered at one time or another, and he's not only smart, articulate, and extraordinarily personable, but he's got ALS. And, and I'll be honest with you, I, I, I'm getting tired of this story repeated over and over in the NFL. We had Dwight Clark, we had Kevin Turner, O.J. of the Ravens has it, so Steve Gleason, the guy presented for the Hall in our first hour, Gene Brito. He died in 1965 at the age of 39 from ALS. What in the world, Ron, is going on, and when is the NFL or someone going to connect the dots?
3: Well, I think they have. There's a pile of scientific evidence uh, connecting ALS to head trauma. Uh, Lou Gehrig, uh, for whom the disease is named, uh, they now believe uh, his ALS was a result of several concussions he uh, suffered during collisions at second base. Uh, I certainly watched my good friend Kevin Turner fight. You know, bravely he gets it right to the end as it just withered him away it's just the most ruthless disease you can think of And I don't know what the answer is but I know my son isn't playing football and it's as simple right. as that for me
4: you know, football is a violent game you know, to reduce the chance of ALS and other such injuries and disease to the brain and spine you're going to have to reduce the violence now, the NFL is doing that by taking defense out of the game but that should impact the stats going forward Over the first 10 decades of the sport, what's done is done, and I think Tim Green sadly will not be the last we hear from.
2: No, I agree with you. And I know the NFL said there's no conclusive proof, but these, these just can't be coincidences. And although, Ron, I will ask you, since you cover the sport, my wife came to me and said, why don't you hear more about this with boxing? And, and you do cover boxing. And I don't know the answer, other than maybe in football, I mean, you're so exposed to so many more blows over the length of your career, maybe, than, than you are in boxing. I don't know.
3: Well, you are. I think it's two things. You are with many, many more blows uh, in in uh, football. <laughs> A lot of these guys in, in recent years have been artificially jacked. Uh, but the other thing is, if you get cussed in boxing, you're suspended for 90 days. You get concussed in football, you're suspended until they wake you up. Uh, yeah, and that's right. been the real uh, dirty truth of the, of the matter. And it's pretty uh, strictly enforced, uh, at least at the professional level now. Amateurs, different. But I have not. I've been around boxing since I was six, seven years old. And I don't know of a boxer. I'm sure there are some. Uh, but I don't know if any uh, boxers with ALS now some have dementia, yeah. uh, and obviously getting punched in the head is not something that I would encourage. But I'd yeah. rather be a retired boxer than a retired football
2: player. Yeah. yeah, I know I'm with you. And anyway, a very very sad story about Tim Green. Um, anyway, let's let's move on. Um, we are going to do something here, and that's give you some Black Friday ideas to help you get through the rest of the season. Now, these are great ideas, or great deals, or both, really, as the season winds down. And we offer them appropriately, free of charge, this week. I mean, what a deal. Anyway, Ron, we're going to start with you. These are great deals. You have a Black Friday deal for our listeners? I do. Discounted Black Friday Purchase. Purchase
3: tickets, if you're a Patriot fan, to Arubra on Super Bowl weekend, (laughs) because the Patriots are not going to Atlanta, so you won't be there either. defense can't stop a nosebleed. Their aging quarterback's starting to look aged. And their receivers can't get open in an empty room. Buy those cheap plane tickets now and a beach towel.
2: Get off my lawn, Ron. (laughs) Goose, how about something for Cowboys fans? Do you have something for Dallas fans? Yeah,
4: would you buy another Russian power for Ezekiel? Elliott? Uh, He won the crown as a rookie when he played a full 16 games. Surrendered it in 2017 when he sat six games with NFL suspension. He's in second place now, 90 yards behind Todd Gurley. If the Cowboys are going to win the NFC East, they must continue feeding him. The Rams have several playmakers, the Cowboys just one. That increased workload over the next six weeks should enable Elliott to overtake Gurley. So by Elliott.
2: You going to send that message to Jerry Jones, Goose?
4: They've been listening all season long.
2: (laughs) Always listen to the Goose, man. They should. I just got back from Chicago a couple weeks ago, as you guys know, and I have something for anyone looking to take a trip. There's still plenty of room available on the Bears bandwagon. That's true. I wasn't buying when I was there last month, but I am now. And the reason, all together now, guys, defense. 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 (laughs) I I became a believer after watching the Bears engulf Kirk Cousins. That would be Michigan State's Kirk Cousins and the Vikings last weekend. So all aboard. Bandwagons begin to load in Chicago, Goose.
4: Okay, guys, I got a 2-1 Black Friday special. The NFL's offensive and defensive rookies of the year on the same team. Guard Quentin Nelson and linebacker Darius leonard of the Colts. Nelson was a key addition to the blocking front that is not allowed a sack in the last five games as the Colts have been resurrecting their playoff bid with four consecutive victories. Leonard leads the NFL with 104 tackles, five sacks, four force fumbles, two recoveries, and an interception by the Colts.
3: Well, I have a great Black Friday deal for anybody, but especially you, Clark, man. I'm listening. This is for your fantasy team. By Leonard Fournette. He's piled up at <laughs> 95 yards oh, and a touchdown please. last week. He's had oh 41 fantasy points in his last two games. He's got fresh <laughs> legs. The The Jags have a dead quarterback. So do the smart thing. Run with Leonard.
2: <laughs> Why would I run with Leonard when I've got Todd Gurley? <laughs> Who's he? Todd Rusland. Russell- <laughs> Light. Light. <laughs> You know, on Monday night there are a lot of fantasy football owners going. Who's he like me? I'm going give him the ball for God's exactly. sake. They don't want to give him the ball, but they'll <laughs> give it to my Leonard.
3: Yeah.
2: <laughs> well, anyway, that's the signal that there's another Black Friday bargain out there. And you know what? It's our own Mr. Brick Goslin, aka Dr. Data with this week's piece of advice and again. Listen up. Free of charge, Doc. What do you got?
4: The NFL has evolved into a Sunday edition of the Big 12, a game driven by quarterbacks with the football in the air. Run the ball, forget it. Play defense, forget it. We were reminded how inconsequential those two football elements have become on Monday night when the Rams and Chiefs became the first NFL teams to score 50 points in the same game. The two quarterbacks combined to throw 95 passes for 891 yards and 10 touchdowns. Just one year ago, there were eight 400-yard passing games. Through 11 weeks this season, there have already been 14, excuse me, 19 400-yard passing games. There were two games that both quarterbacks passed for 400 yards, and both of them involved Jared Goff and the Rams. Kirk Cousins and the Vikings squad the opposition in a one. Patrick Mahomes and the Chiefs. The competition in the other. The three best teams in the NFL: the Saints, Rams, and Chiefs, all live by the pass. The NFL record for 400-yard passing games in a single season is four, shared by Dan Marino and Peyton Manning. Ryan Fitzpatrick has claimed a share of that record with his four <laughs> 400-yard games a season. Ryan. Fitzpatrick, not Tom Brady, not Drew Brees, not Aaron Rodgers. Ryan Fitzpatrick. Fitzpatrick. When average NFL quarterbacks <laughs> suddenly become capable of superhuman feats and NFL records, the game has officially jumped the shark. Blake Bortles, Christ's sake, even has a 400-yard passing game this season. There were 97 300-yard passing games last season. There've already been 98 through 11 weeks of this year. Rookie Sam Darnold and Baker Mayfield have had them. Backup quarterbacks C.J. Beathard and Brock Osweiler have had them. If you can't pass in today's NFL, you can't win. So here's a tip for you come January. Go all in on the quarterbacks. Now more than ever, for better or for worse, the NFL has officially turned the keys of the car
3: over to the quarterbacks. So, Goose, is this uh, irreversible inflation that will lead to depression? Or will the suits who run the sport see the error of their ways and swing the pendulum back, like baseball did when they lowered the pitcher's mound, toward defense? Ryan, I have uh, have two words for you. Ryan Fitzpatrick,
2: the Amish rifle. The Amish rifle? You're avoiding your. Don't knock those (laughs) arms. Don't knock those Harvard guys.
4: Ryan Fitzpatrick, NFL record holder.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Hey, Goose, does this mean you're not taking my Black Friday deal? You're not getting on the Bears bandwagon?
4: (laughs) Did you watch Monday Night? That's the
3: future of the NFL. God, can you imagine? Well, the yeah, good well, thing is I'll, I'll be going to bed earlier a lot more
2: often. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> unlike, unlike Monday night, we've got to run, people, and we're going to run to get in on these Black Friday deals. That was great, guys, and thanks for the advice. You're
0: listening to the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Bob Glauber has been the national NFL writer at Newsday
2: since 1992, a 26-year run that remains unbroken. And this this week, he's out with a new book called Guts and Genius. And when I saw that, I thought Bob had written a book about us. But no, no, no. This is Guts and Genius, the story of three unlikely coaches who came to dominate the NFL in the 1980s. It's the story of the rise of Bill Parcells, bill walsh and joe gibbs who won a combined eight nfl championships and mentored a cavalcade just a cavalcade of future head coaches and it's a good one it's a good book it's a good read bob's a hall of fame voter and he's the president of the pro football writers association as well as a not too infrequent guest on our show and bobby i know it's been a while but great to have you back
6: Well, thanks for having me there, Clark. I appreciate it. always enjoy chatting with you gentlemen, and um, it's it's always a good time.
3: One of the uh, fascinating tidbits that you point out in your uh, uh, book, Guts and Genius, uh, is that uh, not only were these guys winners, uh, but they mentored so many young coaches in remarkable ways. As you reported, who knew? Probably Goose, no one else, but 30 of the last 37 Super Bowls, including 17 of the last 18, have been won by... Either those three coaches or their former assistants. Why, in your opinion?
6: Yeah, a good you? question, and I, I just I, I found that incredible that their impact continues today and in and, and a huge way. And, and you can add to add to that that all thirty two current NFL head coaches are from either the Parcells or Walsh coaching trees. And it's, it's staggering how much of an impact that they had on their generation and then future generations. I think, I think Walsh and Parcells in particular really, um, and it's not that Gibbs didn't do it, but Walsh and Parcells really had an eye toward developing coaches on their staffs. And Walsh in particular, you know, he was so crushed, by being passed over by paul brown in nineteen seventy six when brown named tiger johnson the bengals coach he promised himself that if he ever became a head coach he would always try to help his assistant coaches develop into prominent head coaches and he would never never blackball them like paul brown did him and I think what you came out of that was, you know, he would develop a Mike Holmgren. He would, you know, develop other coaches, Dennis Green, um, a lot of coaches from his staff. And those coaches went on to learn how to become coaches themselves and to kind of pass that, that torch down and pass the torch. And Parcells had his motivation a little bit differently. He had a high school coach named Mickey Corcoran at Orodell High School, and Corcoran was his basketball coach and really mentored him and had a profound impact on Parcells as, he, as a young man, and he stayed with him uh, throughout his life, just in, you know, they, they were friends throughout his life, but Mickey Corcoran always said to Parcells, you got to pass it on, you know, you have to give back to coaches the way I will give to you, and that's just the way you do it. And Parcells was always sure to do that. And I, I think the result is that they were able to teach coaches how to be coaches. And those coaches went out on their own and, and became damn good coaches, winning Super Bowls and going to Super Bowls and, and, you know, perhaps go in the Hall of Fame, certainly with Bill Belichick.
4: How do these three guys differ?
6: Goose, they were different personalities, you know. Walsh was a Walsh was like almost manic depressive. He was he was so up and down and so emotional and very very smart and extremely intellectual and and he was almost a tortured genius, a tortured soul um because he was just so consumed with himself and so consumed with the game. I remember talking to his wife um for the book and he was so um, into football back in their days in Cincinnati, she you know he'd give her a hug and as they were hugging he he'd draw plays on her back shoulder <laughs> and, and they and then they'd stop right and they'd stop the embrace and, and she goes Bill did you score <laughs> you know did you score a touchdown on that it was hilarious and he would he was just so consumed with it and I think there was there was doubt in Bill in Bill Walsh's mind he he doubted himself a lot he 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 knew he he had Good concepts, but but he doubted a lot of times whether it would work. And you know, his first two years in San Francisco were very tough. Once he got to the top, it, you know, he, he stayed there, but but not without these big ups and downs now Gibbs is probably the most level-headed of the three just a just a major a master tactician phenomenal X's and O's guys maybe the best that's ever been really to win three Super Bowls with three different quarterbacks none of whom was close to the Hall of fame is is incredible and and has not been done really by anybody and then Parcells was the you know he was the bully he he bullied he bullied players. He bullied media. I've been a victim of that bully many, many times, and you know, in a good way. Um, but he, he kind of willed his teams to win, and you know, he he was a punishing, physical head coach who you know had to do it his way, had to beat the other guy, and it was more of a blood and guts approach for Bill Parcells than it was for Walsh and Gibbs, who were much more, much, much
2: more cerebral. Well, Bob, you probably don't know this, but Ron coaches his son's hockey team, and he designs the plays on his wife's back as well.
6: (laughs) Oh, yeah, but I I imagine those teams, Ron, tell me if I'm wrong. You got the
3: Hanson brothers uh, playing there or what? (laughs) Uh, It can get rough. rough (laughs) My boy did take somebody into the glass last week, eh? and I said to the official, it happens. What are you going to do? (laughs)
2: <laughs> well, we we asked you about how they differ. I, I'm going to ask you about similarities. I mean, what similarities or how were these guys similar in how they ran their organizations and really their approach to winning?
6: Well, I think the similarities, Clark, would be that they, they just had their the vision and they they stuck to that vision. Now things changed um, and when they had to change. Parcells you know, Parcell's nearly got fired his first year. He was he was going to be fired. And George Young and the co owners, Tim and Wellington Mara, who weren't talking to one another, but they all had decided that Bill had to go after that first year, three twelve and one. And, you know, he came back with a resolve that was kind of typical of all three of those guys. You know, they all, they all believed in what they, they had to offer. They didn't know whether it was going to work. So I think their conviction was very big, um, and their willingness to kind of adapt to circumstances. You know, Joe Gibbs was 0-5, his first five games in the NFL. He, he truly thought he was going to be the first coach fired before ever winning a game and and really he he did feel that way. Jack Kincook Cook called him into his office one time, and Gibbs thought he was that was it. He was gonna get fired. <laughs> he just kind of came to give him a pat on the back and um, but they they were able to change you know Gibbs changed horses in midstream that first year. He went from the the San Diego offense trying to pass the ball. It didn't work in the NFC East. so after five games he goes to a to a running offense and really, you know, kind of dumbs it down and really gets conservative but that's the way he had to play and that you know that change stayed with that team and he still tried to he got the passing game going and he had the you know a lot of good receivers and made good receivers over time but you know the 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 fundamental part of his offenses remain the running game and and that was change from from what joe gibbs had expected walsh stayed true to the west coast offense um, and you know he kind of refined it over time and it and it got better over time and you know what's what's the predominant offense in the NFL today so it's the, it's the west coast offense it's the Bill Walsh offense with a lot of bells and whistles granted but the, you know the primary concepts of that offense started with Bill Walsh back in the back in really the 70s when he was with uh, San Diego with uh, Cincinnati then San Diego then on to Stanford and then the 49ers
3: you can tell a story in the book I found uh, uh, typical and, and very uh, interesting about Parcells and Walsh, in which uh, Parcells accuses Walsh of sabotaging his own headsets uh, during the first series of a game so that the Giants couldn't use theirs because Walsh uh, uh, you know, scripted his place. So can you tell us a little bit of that story and what the fallout was from that?
6: Yeah, you know that was one of the funniest things I've ever heard from Parcells. We're up in his apartment in Saratoga, New York, uh, was last year, and he had invited me up. You know, he knew I was writing a book. He says, "Come on up, you know, we'll talk." We talked for hours, and and he goes, "Let me tell you something about Bill Walsh. There was a game we had in '86, so we were in the playoffs in '86. Now, back in '85, and and Parcells is great describing this. Back in '85, right before the first series is going on." The headsets mysteriously went off. Right? Somehow they just went off right when the first series was starting. So we got to turn our headsets off. And then I, I realized what was happening. So didn't say anything. The Giants won the game 17-3. to And the next year, they play again, and this is the NFC Championship game. And before the game, Parcells is on the field talking to Walsh. And you know how Parcells, he, he talks before a game, he'll fold his arms, beat you in gum, and just uh, shoot the breeze. And Walsh is standing there, and Parcells says... Hey, look! It. I know what you did last year with the heads, you know, with the headsets. If you do it again, I'm going to report you. Don't try that effing stuff, or I'm going to expose you. <laughs> so, what does Walsh do? But he smiles, and he said, yeah, "It's just a little gamesmanship." It was a really interesting, interesting conversation. You know, Walsh basically admitted it. But, but what Walsh gained from that was, in Parcells' mind, much more of a respect for Bill Parcells, because he knew that Parcells knew that he had messed around with the headsets, and he also knew that Parcells didn't say anything about it. He was willing to just go along with it, and he, you know, he, he overcame it. And, and there was a respect that Walsh got for Parcells right in that moment. And that respect probably grew a little bit more as the Giants beat the 49ers, I believe it was 49-3, to in that game on the way to the Super Bowl. And, he, you know, Bill Walsh knew the Giants were the Super Bowl champions that year. But, they, you know, the rest of their relationship kind of got cemented by that moment that, you know, Parcells knew that Walsh knew, and, and, and he dealt with it, and he overcame it. So it was kind of a cool moment.
2: Hey, Bob, thanks so much. Appreciate the time. We got a roll, but uh, we'll be looking for you at a book signing here at R.J. Julia in Madison, Connecticut, okay? You going
6: to be here? <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, I'll take
2: the beer there, Clark. You got it. <laughs> okay, okay. Stay thanks, overnight. Bobby. <laughs> yeah. Thanks, guys. Appreciate you having me. See you, Bobby. That is Hall of Fame voter <laughs> and author Bob Glauber. Up next is the league's all time
0: leading scorer, Adam Venditere. This is the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges.
2: Well, on October 4th of this season, the Colts' Adam Vinatieri made history. Became the NFL's all-time lead scorer, breaking the record of Hall of Fame kicker and friend of the show... Morton Anderson, and appropriately Morton, who was wearing his gold Hall of Fame jacket at the time, not long afterwards sent Adam a congratulatory video message from a golf course saying, one day I'll see you here in Canton. And you know what? I think that's a pretty safe bet. There are a few records that Adam does not hold. He has the most points in the regular season and the playoffs. He's first in field goals made, first in overtime field goals, and the only player to score 1,000 points for two different teams and now at 45 he's the oldest active kicker in the league but certainly and probably more importantly not the oldest kicker to join us on the talk of fame Adam thanks so much for being here
3: Well, thanks for having me on guys uh, Adam I, I, you know you've told this story before and you and I have talked about it but for a lot of our younger uh, listeners they likely don't know that if uh, General George Armstrong Custer hadn't sent your great-great-grandfather back to the to the fort before he left for the Little Bighorn, uh, Morton Anderson's record would still be safe. So could you share a little <laughs> bit your your personal history with, uh, uh, you know, with General Custer? Yeah, it's a it's a pretty interesting story.
1: Um, my great great grandfather came over on the boat and hit at Ellis Island. At the time, it was kind of back. Well, when everybody was uh, expanding westward across the country, and um, at the time, the best jobs available were were military. So he joined the army. He uh, was a piano maker back in Italy, and he uh, composed his own music and did a lot of that different stuff. Early in his uh, career, he met uh, General George Custer. Custer really enjoyed his music and decided to make him his bandmaster. And, and back at, at that time, when they were um, going across the country and, and settled in the Dakota Territory, a lot of time they used uh, the band. Uh, would do you know symphonies, and they would do different different things to kind of. It's more of a morale boost uh, um, for the troops and stuff. It kind of gave them. A, a way to, to decompress, I guess, at the time. Well, long story short, they left all of the, the band back uh, at Fort Meade when they went to, to the, the infamous Battle of Little Bighorn. And, and honestly, I'm not sure. I need to do my research and figure out if he had his children prior to or post uh, Battle of Little Bighorn. I'm not, like you said, I'm, I might not be here today if uh, if he would have went along with with uh, with the rest of the military at that point. <laughs>
3: (laughs) We're damn glad he didn't, and so are the Patriots and the Colts. (laughs) You and me both, buddy. You and me both. (laughs) Uh, You know, everyone now uh, regards you, rightfully so, as the game's best uh, place kicker. Uh, But it all started for you in Amsterdam in the World League that a lot of people won't even remember in 95, and then you signed the following year with the Patriots, and, of course, I was covering the team at that time. And uh, what I remember is you winning the job and then going – Three for seven in the first uh, three games, I think it was, under Bill Parcells, and Parcells starting to look sideways. Uh, And then you went five for six, including a 40-yarder in overtime to beat the Jaguars that next week. How important do you think that game was to your career, uh, or or do you think that you were safe even though uh, things weren't going as smoothly as they later would?
1: No, I definitely think that was a life-or-death game for me at that point. I remember Bill Parcells saying he's week-to-week, week, which to me means uh, you got one more <laughs> chance there, bud. So thank goodness uh, the next game was a pretty good game, and like you said, uh, there was a, an overtime game winner in overtime, and that bought me another week. I think as a rookie, I think at, at, at any point in your career, you're you're really only as good as your last game, and, and job security is is a funny thing. I guess if you're a, a first rounder or a $100 million quarterback you probably have a little bit more than the rest but as a rookie kicker you don't have a lot of that so fortunately for me um, unfortunately the first couple of games were a little rocky but after that Jacksonville game kind of righted the ship and, and the rest of the season was, was pretty good and and that kind of catapulted me into the next year I kind of found found my way, found some confidence and, and um, uh, not to say that there's not missed kicks a- along the career and things that you wish you could have another chance at, but it definitely it definitely got better from there. And 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 I think at at that point, you know, about three fourths of the way through this season, maybe it was December. We we went to Dallas, and um, I think I think at that point there was a game where that that game I kicked off and was fortunate enough to track down Herschel Walker and maybe the most athletic play I've ever had in my entire career. But I think. I think Bill Parcells at that point told me, hey, you know, um, you're more to this team than just a kicker all of a sudden. So I think that helped probably give, give me a little bit more um, value to the team and my, and my other teammates. They, they looked at me a little different at that point, and that kind of helped to catapult my career in the right direction.
4: And you not only have the most points in field goals in history, you have those all-important signature kicks, including 12 in overtime and the two last-second game winners in Super Bowls. So what's the first one you're going to tell your grandkids about? (laughs)
1: well i tell you what you know it's one of those things that that as a kid as any person that wants to play in the nfl i think being able to play in the biggest game um playing a super bowl is, is obviously what you dream about and as a kicker they have the opportunity to to put the icing on the cake at that point yeah there's nothing quite like being able to kick a game winner in a Super Bowl, uh, you know, once or, or, or even a second time, I guess, for that matter. But I think that one is one of those that there's not a bigger platform, there's not a bigger kick, there's not a a better opportunity um, than that. Although it is is proud at at, at those two kicks. I I think the one that I'm probably the most proud is the one in the, in the snowball game and the divisional playoff game against Oakland. Uh, It was just, I was just sheer difficulty. I mean, um, there was, you know, six, five, six, seven inches of snow on the ground. We're down by three, um, and it's a forty-five-yard field goal. If you miss it, the season's over, and you're cleaning out your locker. And to be able to put that one through the posts, and and to be able to um, tie the game up, going to overtime, and then have a, a shorter field goal to win at the end. I, I think that's probably the one that I'm the most proud of, um, just because of sheer difficulty, but. Over 23 years, there's been a lot of kicks. I've probably forgotten more than I remember, but there's a few good ones along the way for sure.
4: Okay, after those 10 years in New England and three more with the Colts, injuries hit you pretty hard in 2009. You played only six games, underwent hip surgery, and and had an aching knee. At that juncture, were you close to calling it a career, or were you sure you'd come back healthy?
1: Well that was one that I was asking the docs and all that because I, I literally remember asking one of the one of the docs before we had the surgery, as I said Am I going to be able to come back and play with my kids and, and do all that stuff? Because if, if I'm going to mess things up so much that it's going to be – I've seen a lot of older, former players that, you know, medicine and, and surgeries weren't quite what they are at this day and age. And and I've seen a lot of great great football players that played back in the – 40s, 50s, 60s, and some of those guys, they, they couldn't walk very well, their hands and their everything was all busted up. So I think at that point, in my mind, was football's been great to me. I'd love to keep going, but I want to make sure that quality of life after football is still going to be there. So fortunately for me, um, our, our team physicians and, and the, the surgeon that did my hip surgery and, and all of our physical therapists and, and, and um, trainers... They did a great job. They worked their butts off to make sure that I got back healthy and could continue on. So I did definitely didn't want to end my career on an injury where I couldn't come back from. But it had to be the right situation. And and now I look back at it; it's been a decade ago, and uh, I feel pretty good. There's there's aches and pains, but I think that's because I'm 45, not because of uh, certain injuries. I, I've been very very blessed to to be relatively injury-free throughout my career, but I've also been more blessed to have great, great staff and great trainers and doctors that have been around that, that pay a lot of attention to try to make sure that we get the best medical care possible and, and stay on the field for as long as we want to.
2: Aches and pains, Adam. Wait till you get to be our age. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> you go to bed, yeah, yeah. And you wake up. And <laughs> yeah. Hey, uh, Adam, I want to stay with that year um, because you didn't play in the Super Bowl, uh, but the next year, you led the NFL with, I think, like a 93% accuracy rate, and you finished third in scoring. When did you know that all was well, that you you were okay to go forward, and that you were just as good as ever?
1: Well, I, I uh, I'll I'll back it up a little bit beyond that. I, they never put me on IR that season, so they they brought in Matt Stover, which is a obviously a top ten um, kicker in the in the league scoring wise. He's got two thousand points, and he was very adequate and very very good kicker. So I felt like the team was in good hands, but I never went on IR because I was always trying to fight to get back onto the field that season. At the end of the at the end of that year, um, I started kicking a little bit. Again with the team, and although it didn't feel great, um, I could still do it. You know what I mean? I still put them through the posts uh, in practice, and I, and and my although although I was still hurting a little bit, I knew as 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 my legs would get stronger and, and everything would get come back. I knew that uh, the following season was going to be okay. I just had to trust in the process of of getting back healthy and getting strong again, and I knew we'd be okay. But I've always been one of these pretty. Pretty stubborn-minded uh, guy that 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 doesn't like to see anybody do their job, and and I, I think that was probably the toughest, definitely the toughest season for me. But watching the Super Bowl from the sideline and not being able to contribute and help the team was one of those feelings that it hurt me bad, and and I didn't ever want to do that again. So um, just I think at this at this point moving forward, the the more time that you spend taking care of your body, the there's no guarantees of, of health. And And all that i mean it's a contact sport and all that but i think the the for the young guys i always try to tell that my younger teammates take care of your body it's it's your tool it's what you have that will can will keep you in the league you can't you can't go out at night and burn the candle bright and expect to be at your top the next day so eating right and sleeping right and doing all the right things helps prolong your career
2: Well, speaking of that, I was wondering, what adjustments have you had to make with age and and with all those thousands and maybe hundreds of thousands of kicks? And and I'm wondering also, how many balls do you think you've kicked in your life? I mean, hundreds of thousands, (laughs) a million? I mean, a zillion, right?
1: I, I I don't even want to try to even figure out how many I've kicked. I know now the older I get, I, I don't kick as much as I used to a, a decade or two ago, for sure. Um, more of a pitch count, more of a kick what you need to stay sharp and to get your timing down, but don't, you know, I, I just can't hit balls all day long and expect to feel good the next day. I think for me, recovery is just as important as the actual time on the field, and and, and I I, it sounds funny, I try to get in my butt in bed and lights off by 10 o'clock and I try to make sure I eat right and, and do all the right things. I get a lot of soft tissue work, I get massages and stuff in the training room just because I, I know how important it is to not let little things turn into big things. So for me, it's, it's, I put a lot more effort and a lot more work into my body now than I did when I was younger and, and I think that's helped me prolong my career.
2: We've got to run, but thanks so much for joining us. Best of luck with the rest of the season, and get in bed by 10 tonight, would you?
6: <laughs> Will do. My pleasure, guys. Thanks for having me. <laughs> thanks, Adam.
2: Thank you. That was Colts Kicker Adam Vinatieri. Up next, is 2-Minute Drill. You're listening to the
0: Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts Studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges.
2: Well, we're almost through to the drumstick and the wishbone. So, Shea, sound the alarm. That's, that's the two-minute warning. That means we're through with the turkey, mashed potatoes, and cranberry relish, and on to the dessert. Ron, that's you. Let's get to the two-minute drill.
3: If you were hiring men to work in a glass factory, who would you hire first? Christian McCaffrey, Brandon Cooks, DeAndre Hopkins, Julio Jones, or Odell Beckham Jr.?
2: Cosmo Kramer.
3: Michael
4: Thomas, who treats Drew Brees' passes like Waterford Crystal.
2: Ooh, nice.
3: Best old man quarterback, Tom Brady, Drew Brees, Brett Favre, or Earl Morrill?
2: Please, Brady.
3: There's only one Spartan on that list, Earl Morrill. <laughs> the NFL says it'll play in Mexico next year. Fake news, payback, or
2: misdirection play? Muy intelligente, mucho dinero. <laughs>
4: It's the right thing to do. Just don't expect Chiefs-Rams Part 2 in 2019.
3: Who had a worse nightmare on Sunday, Alex Smith or Joe
2: Theismann watching? Joe, Alex didn't have the chance to have one.
4: Theismann, he lived it once and
3: then watched the replay on Sunday. Do the 4-6 Eagles need to run the table to return to the playoffs?
2: No, they need Tom Brady. 5-1
3: and should get it done in the NFC East. Speaking of Tom Brady, has he finally hit the wall?
2: Oh, please. Not let you consider another division title hitting the wall. Not with
3: the Jets coming up this Sunday, he hasn't. Goose mentioned the Saints wide receiver, Michael Thomas. He's been targeted 91 times this season and caught 82 passes for 1,042 yards, a completion rate of just over 90%. Is he having the greatest season by a receiver ever?
2: No. Cinderella was. She received true love's kiss.
4: <laughs> it's not on a par with Jerry Rice's 22 touchdowns, 87 or Calvin
3: Johnson's 1,900 yards, in 2,012. After eight straight 100-yard receiving games, <laughs> Adam Thielen has gone two weeks without a 100-yard game. Has the league caught up with him or finally noticed
2: him? No, gravity has.
3: <laughs>
4: defense tonight, Thielen. Kirk goes elsewhere. Stephon Diggs has had 100-yard games the last two weeks.
2: We'd like to thank Drew Pearson, Adam Vinatieri, and Bob Glover for joining us, Shay Raftus for producing us, and you for listening to us. If you'd like to hear this or any podcast, just go to our website, that'd be or find us on iTunes or your podcast app. Otherwise, look for us next week at this time and on this station. We'll be here. We hope you will be, too. Happy Thanksgiving.